from Whitestone to Green Ridge, from Brownsville to Red Hook, all across the five boroughs in the 62 counties of New York State. It's 5 p.m. on Wednesday, December 5th, so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, good to see you. How are you doing? You too, Ben. We've got uh, Ken behind the, the controls here on another uh, week of Max and Murphy as we continue to look at Agenda 2019. Yeah, we're getting close to 2019, actually. We're now into December, uh, first show of December for us here. There's a lot going on. We've been at Gotham Gazette and City Limits, and of course here on WBAI, and also with Manhattan Neighborhood Network. We've been previewing 2019 and the big stories, the big policy discussions, budget issues, more coming up on the budget issues, uh, but uh, really looking at some of the key issues that will be on the table, especially in Albany when state government kicks off its year in the new year with a whole different political landscape um, and then also a little bit at City Hall and around the city, some some key issues to watch. So it's been fun doing it. I've been you know really good to dig into some of the issues that are going to be at the forefront. Yes, I know you've enjoyed working with me. Uh, the, but, and Despite obviously that. just to, yeah, to, to remind people, of course, New Year's occurs virtually every year. Uh, but this year it's particularly uh, freighted because of the, the election we had, uh, the changes at the national level in terms of democratic control of the House, what that means for uh, dealings with President Trump. At the state level, of course, we have the uh, control of the state Senate by Democrats, really for the first time uh, in in many decades in terms of the size of their majority. And just a lot of huge uh, decisions to, to come to bear, everything from congestion pricing in Albany to the city's fair housing process here, rezonings, decisions around closing Rikers, all that stuff is on the table. We've been looking at it issue by issue. This week's issue is about the process itself political reform, a huge topic during the election, uh, questions about campaign finance reform, questions about voting uh, practices, which were brought very much to the fore on election day itself with some of the problems and delays we saw, uh, ethics questions that are now very much in the news, and that's what we'll be focusing on today. But there's so much to talk about. Yeah, and, and just before we get to the news of the day and the week and today's topic, you know, uh, today's show will be mostly focused on those reform issues around voting and campaign finance. But just to recap, and folks, should obviously find all this work at the City Limits and Gotham Gazette websites. But we did some broad overview stuff. We did Criminal Justice Week, Transit Week, Housing Week. We're into political reform. Next week is Health and Healthcare Week. Uh, then we'll have Budget Week. And then we'll do some other stuff that hits on some of the other topics, environment, education, things like that, because you know we, we just made some decisions about what to dedicate the weeks to. But obviously, uh, even though we're very smart about these things. That does not uh, mean that we made foolproof decisions by any means. And it was very hard to decide what to dedicate these weeks to, but we made some choices. So we went and did a lot of stuff on some of these topics, and then we'll be at least touching on some of the others. And of course, you can't get to everything, but um, you know, we've, we've done a lot so far, reporting, opinion pieces, video, audio, all that stuff. So folks should definitely check, check out everything we've produced from looking at the Queens District Attorney race to, as you mentioned, congestion pricing and all sorts of other things. Today at uh, 530, we'll be joined by two excellent sources on the political reform story. Jessica Wisniewski from uh, Citizen Action of New York and Allison Hirsch from 32BJ. Then and now, we want you to be part of this discussion. Ben and I will be 
going over some of the issues of the day uh, over the next few minutes. And we want you to be part of that conversation, certainly be part of our conversation with our guests later on. So please, right now, start dialing up 212-209-2877. The big question we'll be talking about today, I think, is priorities. What are the priorities in terms of reforming the political system in New York State, how that affects politics in New York City? Is it campaign finance reform? Is it the voting system? Is it ethics reform involving our elected officials? So we're interested in hearing what you say about that. And Ben, some of these issues have been uh, in the news just over the past couple of days. Absolutely. And, and you know, not only have folks at the city and state levels been evaluating the election mess that happened, questions around the Board of Elections. New York One had a great story about potential conflicts of interest for the executive director of the New York City Board of Elections. Um, but, you know, Amazon coming to New York City has been an enormous issue of late. Uh, and, you know, just generally what people think of the job that the mayor is doing, the job the governor's doing as, you know, Governor Cuomo was just reelected. He heads into a new term next year and he will be dictating a lot of what happens in New York, as he always does uh, and as the governor should. Um, but also Mayor de Blasio uh Struggling a bit, trying to find his way. He had these issues around the maybe firing of his uh, Office of Emergency Management Commissioner. The New York Times had a fairly devastating story about the mayor with with some really good mining of his public schedules. Um, And they called it the vanishing mayor. And, you know, the evidence in the story showed that to be fairly true. Right. For those who haven't read this New York Times story, it looked at the mayor's public uh, schedule and his and his private calendar and uh, noted that he has spent an average of I think it was it was nine days in in City Hall in 2017, well down from the earlier part of his term. It's up a little bit uh, this year, but in some months has been as few as five days. And that being part of a pattern of not meeting in person with his commissioners, the commissioner in the news over the past couple days, as you said, is apparently outgoing. Uh, Office of Urgent Emergency Management Commissioner Joe Esposito, who, according to the Times, hasn't met with the mayor in uh, at least a scheduled meeting uh, in two and a half uh, years, although the mayor's office says there have been other incidents, uh, instances where the mayor has come into contact with him. But um, still a, a rather e- extraordinary um, uh, lack of meetings with the person in charge of managing the city's response to major emergencies when we've gone through a couple of hurricane seasons, a couple of terrorist attacks, always threats to the city. Uh, just kind of amazing. Well, uh, two things. One, it raised questions in the story about why aren't if these other meetings are happening, why aren't they making it onto the schedules that the mayor's office makes public about what uh, the mayor is doing? Uh, but, you know, Joe Esposito got not one, but two meetings with the mayor, apparently, uh, on, <laughs> on for a to, lost to time. figure out whether he was actually being fired or not. And apparently there was one meeting and they uh, Esposito left that and it wasn't completely clear what was happening. So they had to have a second meeting, which gets at the root of, of all the, um, you know, the mess that was around it, where apparently uh, Deputy Mayor Laura Anglin had fired Esposito, but she wasn't really supposed to at the time it happened. But things had escalated between them. The Mayor was in Vermont at the time, uh, again, indicative of the fact that he's out of town quite a bit. Um, so the whole th- episode sort of got at issues around the mayor and fed into this larger narrative that the data supports that the Times found that he's at least in some ways a bit of an absentee 
chief executive. One thing I wanted to ask you and and talk about a little bit is, does it matter? I mean, does it does it matter that the mayor is not at City Hall that much? I mean, it's 2018. People are doing things remotely. They're doing things on devices all the time. What do you think? It's interesting because this actually ties into threads that we've heard about de Blasio, obviously throughout his mayoralty, that he, he is not often physically there, him going to the gym late in the morning, you know, not showing up at uh, the fire scene where the firefighter was shot was perhaps the most uh, glaring example of that. And I think there's two things to keep in mind. One is that in, in the mayor's defense, um, he does not pay much attention to optics. And he thinks, I think, that some of the sort of showing your face, the Rudy Giuliani driving to every fire scene in the city Andrew Cuomo. is, and Andrew Cuomo, <laughs> is really uh, just a form of theater, is uh, is not really conducive to, to good operations. The mayor does not have operational control in those situations, um, that it is, it, you know, really just kind of uh, a, an ongoing campaign commercial, one that he's not going to participate in. He has he has said that, and there's something admirable about that. His defense on the more tactical level, at least the one that his aides say, is that he is, you know, he's a mayor who is constantly on his phone, constantly directing um, people uh, via um, you know, electronic communications and, and other forms of issuing orders. A lot of meetings at Gracie Mansion and not at City Hall. The the more, I think, important thing about the critique in the Times story is what it says is that because people can't be with him face to face, there is a backlog on major decisions. And that's the interesting kind of take on Mayor de Blasio I've heard is that he actually is a very hands-on manager, maybe too hands-on, maybe too much of a micromanager. Right. Right. But um, because he isn't often there to do the face to face, things get backed up a bit. That's a critique I have heard from a lot of people. Um, he would say, obviously, that there have been some pretty big successes that indicate the city's being well-managed overall. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, I think there's no question. I mean, I think it was even the Times had a story, forget the face-to-face meetings. There's also, they had the, uh, I believe the story on the decision memos that then also create a backlog. Um, it, whether it's a, if it's in paper or in person, there seems to be some challenges around getting things through that pipeline. And maybe the mayor wants to sign off on too much or is too hesitant on certain things. I mean, this this strange contradiction that the mayor who's always so political and politically minded doesn't want to do the optics thing has always been weird to me, right? I mean, he's always got politics top of mind. Clearly, he's a political operative that is so clearly the way he thinks and the way he approaches things um, and and to, you know, his detriment to an extent affects seems to affect governing too much. Um and then wouldn't care about some of these, you know, sort of more symbolic measures about how a mayor, quote unquote, is supposed to act and, and show up and not be at the gym from nine to 11 on a weekday morning. I just don't get. Um, but I absolutely do recognize that it is a 24 seven job. He's certainly on his device at all hours. That's pretty clear. You know, he's responsive. He I, I do think he cares a lot about what's happening in his government. I mean, I think that's fairly clear. And this is a guy who comes across as very knowledgeable about policy and and programs and what's happening in government. So there's some weird contradictions there. Yeah, he may not save every email, as we know, but he does <laughs> he does send lots of them. But I think another part of this, too, to think about is, is and in de Blasio's mind, and frankly, in the minds of people who cover him, is always the comparison between him and Mayor 
Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg, who you know had a reputation for being a good manager that in many cases was entirely undeserved, whether it was city time or some of the reaction to Sandy. Uh, there's a, a parallel to the Esposito, Esposito situation there. Esposito apparently was not fired because of the reaction to the snowstorm. We're hearing this was a move that was in the works long before the December, the November storm that kind of shut the city down for a few hours. Uh, famously, Mayor Bloomberg was out of town for a big snowstorm in late 2010. The man he left in charge, Deputy Mayor Stephen Goldsmith, the former mayor of Indianapolis, was also out of town. Um, that was a huge disaster, um, but it doesn't seem to have stained Bloomberg's legacy. I think that kind of, that comparison irks de Blasio. He feels it is unfair. And I think to some degree he's right um, that he is always being compared to Bloomberg as this managerial icon um, who had plenty of mistakes and unforced errors on his own part. But the fact is that's just that's just the way it is. And rather than trying to uh, overcome that, uh, de Blasio seems to sometimes have kind of waved his hands and sort of accepted that stereotype and sometimes I think kind of fulfilled it um, almost to exact specifications. You know, I've been saying this for a long time and it bears repeating again, um, I don't think I say it too often, Uh, but that is that, you know, the mayor also made such big mistakes in his first year in terms of the image that he projected about being somewhat aloof, about traveling, about being too concerned with his national image, uh, about sort of portraying New York New Yorkers as not being grateful enough about the you know amazing new day that he had dawned, um, about going to the gym, you know, on a variety of sort of image fronts. He, he he made such mistakes early on. He was late all the time. I shouldn't forget mm-hmm. that one because mm-hmm. he's corrected that to an extent um, that he just, I don't think, could ever get out from under that, even if he's done some correcting and, you know, some of it's a little bit less true than people think, whatever it might be, you know, he just wasn't up to the task of setting in place the right image for himself as mayor of this city that he's never been able to get out from under it. And he sort of got to a point pretty quickly, I think, where he thought he was getting such an unfair shake, mostly from the media and other critics, that he sort of wrote wrote that all off and said, you know, I got elected despite the conventional wisdom and not that many labor unions and this and that. And so forget all these people. Uh, You know, I'm going to do what I want. And my national travel is really for the benefit of the city and and things of that nature. I think there was a writing off of the media early on. And I think that's problematic because the media can be an important check on power. And I think we saw an example of that just in the recent days, the film of the mayor's security detail sort of penning reporters in City Hall so they couldn't find follow the mayor out to ask him some questions was uh, pretty, pretty egregious. Um, but it does There's actually, no indication that he ordered that. By no, the way. no, so exactly. that just might have been, been one person's detail exactly. just making a split that. decision. Right. But, you know, not certainly not the only case when transparency and access have been, you know, if everything from on topic, off topic, a press conference to other things has come up more than once. But I think what we have to say is that, you know, you and I have talked about this. The media has harped on this a lot. And yet de Blasio was reelected um, by a, a very, very large margin. Um, um, last year. And I think maybe that's because these optical issues, questions of process, while we feast on them as stories, and I think they are important, what really matters to New Yorkers? And that might come down to the real essential basics of city life. And crime is obviously a big one. The biggest fear that people uh, evoked about de Blasio when he became mayor is that he was going to lose control of the city's fight against crime. We were going to see an uptick in crime, uh, you know, mass hysteria and violence around the city. We have not seen that. And this week we got a new report about the fact that crime continues to 
drop or at least stay at very low levels. Right. I mean, last year was was uh, other than a few blips in different places or a couple of categories of crime. Last year was such a, you know an amazingly safe year in this city relative to to the past, and and that most of these numbers continue to drop. There doesn't necessarily be seem to be that much more room for these numbers to go lower. So even keeping them where they were last year would be a significant achievement. And it looks like, you know, we're 11 months into the year. It looks like things are, are heading in that direction. Uh, remarkably, you know, the, the for example, the, the record low for murders last year was something like 20 or 30 below the prior record. And through November, the city's at the same pace as last year, which was a record shattering year. Um, so that's pretty remarkable. Uh, at the same time, the economy has been excellent, right? So, I mean, this mayor has had this unbelievable streak of a great economy and really low and dropping crime with some other blips, you know, mixed in there. And of course, on the economy front, a lot of people still really struggling. There is some unemployment. There's a lot of poverty. You know, wages aren't high enough, et cetera. So there's caveats to all this. But mm-hmm. a really strong economy in the city. He's been able to grow and grow and grow the budget. Uh amazing crime numbers and yet some huge festering problems this image of him is aloof that's certainly backed up by reality it's just kind of uh shocking to me that we're here at the end of his fifth year and he's had these two major trends in his directions and yet his approval numbers are not that great he struggled to wrap his arms around some of these major problems like homelessness NYCHA um and, and, you know, is in a real sort of position of where is he at, you know, just one year into his second term? What's he really doing? What's his vision? Where is this second term going? Um, you know, it's fairly remarkable that he's had those two big uh, bits of wind at, at his back and he's still struggling in the ways he is. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio coming to you from Brooklyn. We're talking about some of the big news of the day, talking about government reform is our topic for the week. And Ben, I think you make a great point connecting the trouble de Blasio is having with the sense, and it's one that he denies, but the sense that the second term doesn't have the same sense of purpose or strong agenda the first term did of keeping crime low while reducing stop and frisk, of implementing pre-K, of starting up the very ambitious housing plan, much of which it continues to roll out. But I think that part of this is that being mayor of New York City is a brutal job. It is. I mean, yes. it's a job where you have all the responsibility in terms of number of constituents and issues as a governor, frankly, as some heads of state, um, you are are essentially a national figure, but um, expected to give the same kind of access meeting with the press personally virtually every day um, as, uh, as a local official in a small town might. So it's difficult to maintain, I think, a positive um, aspect on that job if you are not setting the agenda, if you're letting the agenda come to you. And unfortunately, the agenda has been coming to de Blasio in the form of sto- snow, in the form of revelations from a corruption trial involving a former donor of his or donors. Um, and I think without a stronger idea of what the next three years are going to be about, um, this could be kind of how it looks from now until 2021, which is a really, really long time. Yeah. I mean, my sense is that they're going to figure out some ways to course correct and we might see some interesting new announcements in the new year. He'll give a state of the city. You know, the other thing at play, and this ties into some of our conversation around Agenda 2019 and some of the things we'll talk about in the second half of the show with our guests who are part of this coalition 
coalition leading a push for voting and campaign finance reform is that the mayor is going to have a different landscape in Albany to work with. And if he plays it right, big if, uh, or even if he doesn't play it that well, he might get a lot of things that he wants from the state. And and as we know, as powerful as the mayor of New York City is and as important of a city as it is, a lot is determined in Albany that relates to what happens in New York City. So that is a key factor, I think, for his second term. He might be able to go around the city and go to Albany on something of a, of a victory tour of sorts for things that he wants and thinks are good for the city or things that the state decides to do that are good for the city if he plays nice and figures out ways to get this done, he might be able to enjoy some of what happens at the state level as somewhat his own victories. And that could resuscitate him a little bit, not to mention some of the things that he may take on or he may announce. Um, But let's tie this together with another little bit of news from today, which is that there was a new uh, poll out, Quinnipiac poll, and we don't want to put any, too much weight on any poll, but there's a there's a new poll released this afternoon by Quinnipiac University that looked at the mayor's approval ratings, but maybe more for our conversation here, the first poll that sort of tapped into public sentiment around this Amazon deal. And this is another example where this is a big thing that de Blasio announced. He didn't quite seem that ready for the pushback it got, or they didn't really have a rollout plan. Um, so this has been another sort of mixed bag for him. There's serious concerns about it. You've written about that. Um, but we have some indication at least of a of taking the temperature of what New York City voters think of this Amazon deal. Yeah, it's interesting. The pullout today, which has been said, also does have interesting numbers on the mayor and governor and approval ratings. But on the question of whether people, uh, New York City voters, approve of the Amazon relocation, it's approved by 57 to 26 percent, which is obviously a very strong approval rating. But um, it's uh, when you think about the three billion dollars in subsidies um only 46% support the deal to 44%. So essentially evens the opinions on the deal. And of course, thinking about the Amazon relocation without thinking about the subsidies is a little bit like talking about basketball, but not the ball. So, you know, to some degree, it's the second number that might be more reflective of what the reality of of opinion is. But But the dichotomy helps us understand, right, that some of the criticism of the deal is, you know, bringing Amazon and all these jobs to the city on its face may have a lot more positives to it if it's not attached to $3 billion in incentives. And even aside from that number, just the general sense that the city and state are almost doing more for Amazon than Amazon will come in and do for its surrounding new home. And and that's sort of the issue. Plus the process of it all has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So I think the dichotomy in the numbers of do you approve of Amazon coming to Long Island City versus do you approve of the subsidy deal shows that without those subsidies, this may have gotten a lot different reaction. Definitely. There are still people who would oppose it. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of the idea just because of Amazon's effect on small businesses and, and its effect on commerce and human relations in general. But obviously that would be a minority view in, you know, at the outset. I think it's the subsidies that really do complicate it and the rollout and the process issues. The fact that they are going to bypass the city's normal land use review process um, as well as avoid the subsidies and the other complications that are, that are tied up in it there. Um, before we move on to our uh, guests in a few minutes. We want to talk also about something that has occurred this week on the ethics front, which is uh, discussion of whether or not New York's legislators, state legislators, deserve uh, a raise. 
Yeah, so so some of the key issues around reform that are popping up right now have to do with the state pay commission that was impaneled by the governor and the state legislature. And, you know, in some ways they assembled this panel so that it would be removed from their decision making. They wouldn't be giving themselves a raise, right? So there's some questions around creating this commission to begin with. The recommendations that this commission puts forward, which I believe are due next week, will become binding law at the end of the year unless the state legislature meets to vote them down. That's the mechanism they use to create this commission. So that's telling, right? They just want this commission to figure out the pay raises, put them forward, and probably just let them set in for the for next year. And they would affect all the members of the state legislature and a lot of the executive branch commissioners. And these officials have not had raises in 20 years. So there's some real momentum even from outside good government experts, we've spoken with uh, Susan Lerner for for an episode of uh, Agenda 2019 that will air on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. They, they're fo- just about everybody agrees that legislators deserve some sort of pay raise. But the question is, what would be accompanying that in terms of what are called ethics reforms? And this are these are things like limits on the outside income that legislators can make. So are they getting a pay raise on their salary, but they can also continue to make unlimited sums as lawyers, insurance agents, et cetera. Now, most legislators don't make a lot of money from outside gigs, but some do. Uh, so would there be a limit or a ban on outside income? Uh, a number of other questions around disclosure and, you know, we could get into all sorts of other ethics questions. People are not really talking about tying things like term limits to a pay raise, but but term limits and other questions around gov- government ethics certainly are in the air as we look towards next year. I think just to give people some numbers for context. So the reason why people are, are concerned about the salaries is not just that it hasn't been updated in a while, but the Assembly and Senate salary is seventy nine five a year, um, which is not a terrible salary, no. but it doesn't involve going to Albany a lot, which you should always get a differential for. And New York City Council is now making one hundred forty eight five a year. Right. So so, you know, almost twice as much. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think, as we've said, some state legislatures have been running for city office. There are other reasons to do that, too. There's a lot of benefits to being a city council member as opposed to a, a state legislator, but that's uh, that's one problem that's there. Uh, this week, you heard uh, State Speaker, uh, sorry, Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty talk about the fact that he did not want the salary raise tied to ethics reforms. He's gotten a lot of backlash for that. I think two things I'd say. One is that you mentioned the other ethics and reform issues swirling around. And it could be that, you know, Hasty's argument might be that um, we want to deal with all of that as a package. And rather than tying that to salaries, which is somewhat separate, you know, let's deal with LLC reform and other reforms together so that reforms that primarily affect the legislature and those that might affect the governor that is the chief LLC fundraiser (laughs) of all time are tied together. I think the other thing is that the the issues on the table of uh, outside income and what's called LULUs, the special stipends given to committee chairs, they have long been on the radar screen of good government groups. It makes a lot of sense to put them on the radar screen, but not 
every or perhaps not even most of the scandals that make us worried about corruption in New York state government have involved those particular problems. You know, uh, Joe Arrigo recently uh, indicted, um, took a, a, a bribe that was handed to him in cash. Uh, Pamela Harris, an assemblywoman who was brought up on corruption charges, was accused of misusing um, Sandy recovery money for her own home. Um, this has not necessarily been, and obviously Governor Cuomo's uh, aides who have been convicted, entirely different issues altogether. How essential are those things to where the corruption really meets the road in New York State? That's a very good point. I think, you know, it's a lot of it is about a suite of things being done. There also needs to be uh, clearly both preventative measures and tougher oversight and enforcement measures. And this is where questions around uh, the role of the attorney general and what Letitia James will do in that role and whether she will actually get a blanket referral to pursue public corruption from the governor. Uh, It's a suite of things. You know, the other factor here that some people raise is that when you raise the salaries and make them more competitive, you know, you sort of get a different crop of people, perhaps, that are less susceptible to corruption. I don't know if that really holds true. I mean, we saw Dean Skelos, you know, brought down by corruption and, you know, Sheldon Silver, and they weren't, you know, doing poorly. So I don't know. There's questions around that. But the other thing we should mention is that New York legislators compared to other states are actually not doing that bad. I believe the salary is still third or fourth highest in the in the country, which is another interesting, you know, aspect for discussion. But the tax has been the tax. The tax is right. Exactly. So, you know, where this is heading, I don't know, because the last pay commission was killed when the state legislators didn't appear ready to uh, agree to these other reforms in exchange for a salary increase. Now, I don't know that Governor Cuomo will let that happen again. He may sort of not put his finger on the scale this time and allow the commission to recommend these raises and then really work out a deal with this this new legislature to move some of these other reforms. We shall see. So we are going to shortly welcome our guests who are part of a new coalition pushing for some of these reforms, I believe, in concert with some of those legislators and the governor. And we'll talk to them about that in just one minute here on Max and Murphy. We're back on Max and Murphy on 99.5 FM, WBAI, a listener-sponsored non-commercial radio coming to you from Brooklyn. Ben Max from GothamGazette.com is here with me, Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And again, we're talking about Agenda 2019, the multiple agendas that will be on the plate for people on the state level and also here in New York City in 2019, what promises to be a big year on a lot of policy fronts uh, for the city and the state. And as we mentioned at the top, 
one of the big ones is reform, reform of the government process itself, questions about how campaign money is raised, questions about how voting is done, questions about the standards we hold uh, public officials to. And we're going to be talking now with a few expert guests on uh, some of those questions and some of the politics behind achieving reform. And they will be uh, Jessica Wisniewski, who is the legislative and campaigns director for Citizen Action of New York, and also Allison Hirsch, uh, who is 32BJ's vice president and political director. Welcome both to WBAI. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So um, tell us a little bit, you are both leaders of a new coalition. So uh, Allison, why don't you start us off? What's the coalition and uh, who's in it and, and what's your what's the top line goals here? Sure, I think Jess is probably the expert on who's in the coalition and all of the 100 plus member organizations, but um, I would say the goal is to strengthen our democracy in New York State. You know, We feel like if we're ever gonna win on the issues that really matter to working people and the people of New York, we need to make democracy more accessible. So, and that's in the form of voting rights, but also just as importantly in the form of money and politics. And we need to make sure that, you know, what any of our members who are office cleaners, security officers, if they want to make a contribution to a candidate who's running for office, that, you know, they can't afford the five, ten thousand dollar contribution that a corporation can, so that if they can give fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, that small contribution can have as much, if not more, impact than some of the, you know, wealthy elite in the state. So the two major things we're talking about that your Fair Elections for New York coalition is fighting for is voting reform and campaign finance reform. Yes. And we can get into some of the details. Uh, But Jessica, uh, who's in the coalition? Oh, well, we are up to, you know, we launched just a, a, what, a week and a half ago with 90 organizations, and now we're up to 130, and it's a huge spread. Everyone from kind of the usual suspects of some of the good government groups, um, but to obviously our friends in labor, um, and a lot of the organizations who work day in and day out up in Albany every legislative session to pass issue campaigns. So like the Campaign for New York Health is signed on, uh, environmental organizations like the Sierra Club, a ton of tenant organizations who are fighting for housing justice. Um, So a lot of community organizations, a ton of the new uprising resistance organizations, many of who participated in fighting against the Trump agenda over the past two years, um, some of the rise and resist and indivisible groups, um, kind of this new groundswell of political participation. Um, You know, it's really just second nature to those groups who want to save our democracy and see New York as a place where we can really push the ball forward, Um, even as House members are looking to pass significant democracy reforms day one. um, The groups in New York see New York now um, with a strong uh, legislature, a blue Senate, blue governor, blue assembly, that we can really move these reforms through and see them enacted. So the groups are really energized and a lot of that grassroots energy coupled with kind of institutional players who've been around the block in Albany are coming together for this fight. There's so many interesting things on the agenda, and I'm curious uh, how they fit together and if they have to kind of uh, work as a, as a program. Uh, if you if you limit uh, uh, big money um, without public financing, does 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 that work? Um, can we kind of pick and choose in the menu, or do we kind of need to do all of the above in order to to get to where we need to go? 
Yeah, we've, you know, we've always believed you cannot just do a small donor public matching fund system, which is really the core of what we want to boost that people power and small donor power in the political system and keep the, the old traditional system where you can write a $70,000 check to someone running for statewide office, right? So we definitely need to bring those really sky high campaign contribution limits for individuals down. We definitely need to close the LLC loophole um, to prevent LLCs from just, you know, keep on forming more and more and skirting the campaign finance limits. And we also need, of course, a really strong administrative agency um, that is going to oversee the campaign finance process and create an atmosphere where candidates can use this, the system successfully. So we want to see that small dollar matching fund system and all of those other pieces of campaign finance reform put together. And then, of course, the voting rights, right? We see this as two sides of the same coin, um, big money out and voters in. So voting rights reforms are the big voters in part uh, and money out is is the series of campaign finance reforms. And and I would only add on the question of is it isn't it just okay to limit big contributions? Why do you need the public matching? It's like in the world of Citizens United, where there are, um, no matter what we do, given the Supreme Court, there will always be unlimited amount of spending on the independent side. We do need to make sure that candidates are competitive. And and for better or for worse, I wish it weren't this way, campaigns cost money. And so we want the contributions, we want candidates to have to go to their own community members, their own districts, their own um, constituents, constituents to uh, gain their support in terms of uh, fundraising. But we also understand that they have to be able to raise enough resources to be competitive in the current day and age. And without public financing, it's challenging to do that. Right. Because if you lower contribution limits um, without doing the public financing, then someone who's facing a lot of dark money, independent spending, or a wealthy self-financed candidate uh, has one hand tied behind her or his back. Exactly. So I'm, I, when I saw this coalition launch, I was a little bit surprised because it almost seems like this stuff is, is a given. Is it, I mean, with Democrats taking control of the state Senate, is, is this not a given? I mean, what do you need to do? I assume this is a little bit more up your alley, Allison, as a political director. What needs to happen here? What role in the process is this coalition playing? I mean, I would say that um, if I've learned anything in politics, it's that nothing is ever Take a given. nothing for granted. Um, and so <laughs> I think we wanted to make sure, look, the reality is we're in an incredibly strong position and we relaunched the campaign because we are in an incredibly strong position. We have a governor who has championed this issue, who has um, been out there included in his budget every year for the last eight years. We have a now soon-to-be majority leader of the state Senate who has also championed this issue, and I think she sponsored the legislation in the in the state Senate. We have a leader of the Assembly who has also championed this issue, right? He has sponsored bills, and so we're in an amazing position, but you never underestimate the power of opposition to undo what should be easily done or what is logically the right thing to do. And so we relaunched this coalition or launched this coalition to begin with to make sure that there, the politics continue to be in our direction and that the grassroots are engaged and are really saying this is one of the most important things to happen because there is a long list. Two quick follow-ups on that. One, who is the opposition? Go ahead. Um, I mean, I would say the, you know, corporations and and wealthy individuals tend to be the opposition in these types of campaigns because they don't they don't want the playing field to be equal. 
And secondly, is there concern that though this has been talked about for a long time, Democrats now fully take control of state government, you know, sort of feeling their power, not really seeing a scenario on the horizon where they backslide out of power in the Senate, you know, voting trends being what they are, et cetera, et cetera. Is that part of the the reason to do this is to is to keep that pressure on them? There's some concern that, hey, I mean, we even saw this as it looked like Democrats were going to take control of the state Senate. We started to see some campaign finance shifts in terms of how donors were approaching some of those Democratic candidates. So is that a little bit of the concern here? Sure. Yeah. So, Jess, what's your uh, I mean, what's your path to getting this done? And what are the what are the pressure points that you need to, to push? You know, I, you know, want to actually return to something you just said, which is the trends. I mean, I feel like this past election cycle, we saw more than ever before some really successful candidates reject corporate money and really depend on small donations. I live up in the Hudson Valley where Jen Metzger became a new state senator, taking what was the open seat from John Bonasek leaving. Um, She really fueled her campaign on small donations. She did not take corporate money. Um, The parties didn't come in and swoop in because nobody thought she could, you know, that wasn't a high priority race. Um, And it really was a groundswell of grassroots volunteers and energy and huge voter turnout of people who are um, really nervous about our country and saving our democracy. And so I'm excited that um, that groundswell of energy from the grassroots is now um, holding these folks as they come into Albany, um, not just holding them accountable, but holding their ability to be strong in coming in and doing these democracy reforms. Um, And that's exactly what our path is, is making sure the same energy that has been there over the past few months um, behind uh, turning up and turning out um, for volunteers to get candidates in, and then all the folks who don't necessarily do partisan politics coming in and making sure they know, the legislators know, this is a top priority. Um, And I think across the country, um, you know, we're seeing the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs of democracy issues. Like some states who have have done voter suppression laws and other uh, states who want to move forward on democracy. New York really can be a beacon of hope here um, for the country to show that we do want more people voting. We do want to break down the barriers, and not just to voting, but to allowing people to participate in politics. And so we're going to do everything we can to make sure um, the folks in Albany, once they're there in Albany, know that this is a top priority through the good old-fashioned uh, calling our legislators and meeting with our legislators um, and generating the atmosphere they need to know that they're on the right path. They've already championed the bill, like Allison said, and we want to see it through, and we're going to give them the support they need to do that. We have a call, I think, on WBAI. Hi, welcome to the show. What's your question? Yeah. Yes, you're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, I have uh, a, a statement. Uh, okay, well, my, my name is Miguel Adams. I'm, uh, you got to turn your radio down, please. Yeah, you got to turn that radio down. Please <laughs> Go ahead. Quick, qu- yeah. a, qu- a quick statement. Uh, I'm sorry. Most yeah, I know that questions for okay. us or the guests. 
Yes, uh, I'm with Vocal New York, a grassroots organization that uh, brings together people who are formerly incarcerated, as myself, and uh, other people that are uh, vulnerable in our community, people living with HIV, Hep C, people that are homeless, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so um, as a formerly incarcerated, uh, I I, want to advocate for uh, the individuals that are in parole right now and uh, can't vote here in the state of New York. And also uh, for the people who are incarcerated uh, and are also disenfranchised for voting, um, which I think is double jeopardy and and it's based on that 13th Amendment, which uh, pretty much most people... That's, that raises a good question, actually. Uh, the question about um, extending the franchise to people who are currently incarcerated. Obviously, there was action around parole this year. Is that part of the agenda to address the disenfranchisement that right now is part of New York's approach to criminal justice? So it's certainly on our agenda to codify in law what the governor did around allowing um, people on parole to vote. Um, we should that should have been passed a long time ago. We were glad to see the governor do it as an executive order. It should become the law of the land, and it's very much a part of our agenda. Um, the The whole coalition hasn't gone to, so far as um, enfranchisement of people currently incarcerated, um, but I know there are a number of organizations a part of the effort who do believe in that, um, and I'm sure we'll be advocating for it. So you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio. We're talking with Jez, Jess Wisniewski uh, from Citizen Action New York and Allison Hirsch from 32BJ, uh, the Service Employees Union. And we're talking about uh, the new coal for New York, a government in the new year, sort of a three-pronged agenda related to uh, what they call fair elections, and that's a public financing campaign finance system, the closure of the LLC loophole in campaign finance finance and sort of a a suite of uh, voting and election reforms. If you have a call for us or the guests, you can call 212-209-2877. I don't know if you want to comment on this, but I'll say at least something I was also a little bit surprised by, which was that in the in the sort of uh, press release that that the coalition released, you indicated not only do do, do these proposals have they had in the past support from uh, Governor Cuomo, Leader Stuart Cousins, and Speaker Hasty, as as you were saying earlier, Allison, but you also mentioned that these were recommendations that were put forward by the 2013 Moreland Commission on Public Corruption. And that surprised me, given that um, obviously that's not a topic that the governor likes to discuss. And and I would assume that this is a coalition that's looking to work closely uh, with him. Uh, Any any comment on sort of including that? And and are there other things that the Moreland Commission was looking at that, that you want, you know, push forward in the new year? You know, I'll just say that it was one of the Moreland Commission's top recommendations, and I think it just goes to show... Which which was? Closing the LLC loophole or...? uh, public financing public of financing. elections, okay. a small donor matching fund system. And it just goes to show that there's no mystery here, right? The New York City campaign finance system is well-known, well-used. Um, people are familiar with it. 
it's 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 kind of a model for the country. Right next door, Connecticut has a statewide system that has five election cycles down with 80 percent participation by candidates. Um, this is a system that is all across the country and growing. Um, and so there's there's no mystery. We don't have to take a long time to figure it out. The blueprint is there. Um, and from all aspects of our um community of politics, it's pretty well known that this is an answer. Um, and it's an ongoing answer. And really, it's about the political will to get it done. And I think, you know, the governor, the governor supports it, like Allison said, has put it in the budget, talked about it in the state of the state year after year. And really, it's been the Senate Republicans who, you know, if you look at the flow of money in politics, so much has gone uh, to those Senate Republicans, um, more so certainly than others. Obviously, money follows majority, right? Um, and they were really the block to moving it before this point. Um, so we, it's a new day in Albany come January, different leaders in the Senate um, and and the kind of blueprint is there we all just need to hunker down and get it done there's um fairly you know widespread uh belief that on one hand of the equation uh, labor unions in new york are really powerful and rightly so and on the other hand uh, too powerful right um and and there are some questions around if the llc loophole is closed in particular whether that should be accompanied by some limits on labor union you know there's a discussion labor union affiliates right the locals you know that they should have some sort of restrictions on them too i mean if these reforms are passed as you're suggesting do they tilt the playing field too too much towards the labor unions? I think there is a false equivalency that often comes about when talking about corporate giving and labor union giving. And the thing you have to remember is that our, like I can speak for 32BJ and the labor movement, given the strict nature of laws that you know govern how we uh, engage in politics, our political contributions come from voluntary member donations to our political action committee on top of the dues that they pay to the union. So like just stepping back on that, we represent uh, 170 plus thousand members up and down the East Coast. 50,000 of them have decided that in order to support the interests of the membership of our union and all low-wage workers, on top of the monthly dues they pay, they're going to contribute $2, $2.50 a week to our political fund to give us the resources to um, to uh, engage in politics. So the difference between that, like having to engage and mobilize 50,000 people to give $2.50 a week versus one corporate president or um, board being able to just write a check is just it's, it's just incomparable and it's really night and day. So I would say that it's like a nice talking point that the right often has, but it is really a false equivalency. Let's talk about goals of this effort. Uh, Jessica was just talking about the city's campaign finance system. With it is very robust and has succeeded on some levels, but obviously, in spite of that, we still see record low turnout in city elections. Uh, evidently, it it has not been enough to make people feel like they wanted to be more engaged in their democracy. So how will we measure whether these reforms are effective? What are we looking to see? It's, uh, is it about merely reducing mm. the amount of money in politics? Do we want to see more people turning out to vote, more people registering to vote? How will we know that these reforms have energized democracy the way we, we, think, it, uh, we think they will? 
sure. I mean, I think one actually significant difference is um, it was the Brennan Center for Justice did a study a few years back um, around donor diversity. So there's lots of ways to participate in politics. And if you they have this incredible map on their website where they overlay (laughs) the New York City campaign finance systems use versus uh, contributions to State Senate and Assembly races. And what you find, of course, is that many of the donors to the State Assembly and Senate come from a small group of zip codes in Manhattan versus when you look at the donors and small donors from the New York City system, they're widespread throughout the whole city. And they're more diverse in all kinds of ways, geographically, racially, um, income-wise. And so it's proven that a small donor public financing system diversifies donors and increases small donations. Um, So that's one really important goal. We want more people participating in all kinds of ways. And when you make a small contribution, you're also more likely to volunteer. You're certainly more likely to turn out and vote. And then the other side of the coin is we, this is a whole package and the voting rights piece is critical. Um, we think, you know, there's been real support for early voting and automatic voter registration and um, no excuse absentee voting, all kinds of reforms that will increase voter participation. Uh, we see them happening all across the country. Um, 37 states with early voting and New York is not one of them. And it's really because we've lived under the leadership in Albany of the past that hasn't been interested in breaking down those barriers. Um, And we're in a very different dynamic now. So I think if we do the package that we seek under fair elections, we will see dramatic voter uh, turnout increases um, and more people participating by being small donors. Well, those would definitely be very interesting uh, metrics to track. And it does seem like, as I said earlier, you know, some of these seem to be on the at least the top of the list when we've had on folks like State Senator Janaris and we've talked to uh, the incoming majority leader, Andrew Stewart-Cousins. They've certainly listed at least the voting reforms is really uh, top of the agenda. And I don't know if you have expectations for a, a piecemeal approach here, a big package of democracy reforms. Is there any anything in terms of a order of operations that you you'd like to see here um you know is is that matter to you or is it more like in this next session let's get these things done i don't think we have any um want to be in a position where we're dictating to the leadership of the legislature or the governor how to get it done you know there are a whole whole bunch of different ways to go about it and so i think we just want to make sure whether you know campaign finance because it's a budgetary issue if it goes in the budget voting reforms wouldn't you know so I, i just think we'll see how that plays out and last question, uh, quickly for whichever one or both of you want to answer this: uh, Have you had? I, I think one of you mentioned a little bit uh, briefly earlier that um, you know there's questions around some of the enforcement and some of the oversight. You know, New York City has the Campaign Finance Board. Some have called the Campaign Finance Board too. Uh, punitive, and there's been some discussion around that. What's going to be the mechanism if there is a public campaign finance system? Uh, is that something on your radar? Or is that something you you are not taking on in this coalition? You want the politicians to figure out. I- I think it is something on our radar. I mean, I think um, I have the benefit of uh, engaging in politics in multiple states. And so, um, you know, the, I think we are interested in uh, replicating the Connecticut model uh, more than the New York City model in terms of, uh, of enforcement agency. And I will say we engage in elections in, in Connecticut and um, the enforcement agency is – uh, wonderful to work with, you know. They enforce. They're very upfront. They um, they're not 
particularly punitive and um, in that at the outset they will uh, you ask them a question they answer it very clearly and so you you know the rules of engagement it's not the same kind of back end process that exists in the city and so um, we have been uh, very clear about sort of our desire to replicate Connecticut and I think in past years you know Connecticut legislators who have benefited from that um, from the public matching program in Connecticut have come and lobbied in Albany. Well, I think Allison Hirsch, we're going to let that be the last word. Oh, sorry, Jess, we're going to have to say goodbye for now, but we're certainly look forward to talking again soon. And thanks for joining us. This has been Jess Wisniewski and Allison Hirsch, two of the leaders of the Fair Elections for New York campaign. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. And listeners, keep paying attention to uh, this station next Wednesday. We'll continue with Agenda 2019, a focus Mm -hmm. on health. And of course, check out GothamGazette.com and CityLimits.org for articles on transit, uh, campaign uh, finance reform, housing, criminal justice, and everything that's coming up. Uh, But you've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio. Have a great week. Thank you.